Welcome to Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I am Eric. I'm Chris. And this is week two of Marvel's Merry Mutants Month. Week two of me not getting the M words out of order. So, good for me. Yeah, I'm just leaving that one to you. (laughs) Yeah, uh, last week we started off with some 60s X-Men, courtesy of Sauron, the anatomically incorrect not actually a dinosaur man uh what are you picking for us for our second topic uh so i've brought in days of future past uh which is x-men uh the uncanny x-men at this point rather uh numbers 141 and 142 from back in 1981 this is the one where mystique's gonna kill a politician and there's the sentinels in the future and they've killed all the mutants and they have to stop mystique from killing the politician it's that one if you've seen the okay-ish movie that one but like less wolverine yeah this is i won't even say arguably because i really don't even think there's that much question the second most famous x-men story after dark phoenix yeah yeah this is number two but it's like a big number two it's a big number two (laughs) that actually has oh anyway um... not like that It is a second that actually has anything to do with the X-Men and mutants conceptually, which Dark Phoenix does not. Is this literally Chris Claremont's first time doing Holocaust imagery in the book, I think? Um, I have read the whole Claremont run. I think this is, this is like not the first time there's a big Claremont run, like mutant metaphor focused story. Like I think you could argue Proteus is very like mutant metaphory um and there's some stuff in some other stories that plays into it a bit but like this is this is i think yeah the first time he dies into holocaust imagery which happens a fair bit after this um if it weren't for that first issue of the dark phoenix saga where like kitty pied and the bondage hellfire club show up in the same issue i'd say this is like where the claremont run really starts we'll have a lot to dive into here of course but real quick before i forget i'll just go ahead and do the creative team roll call we have uh chris claremont as the writer john byrne on arts both of them are credited as co-plotting terry austin is on inks we have tom orchachowski on letters coloring credit is to glennis wayne on editor it's credited to louise jones who is now more known by Louise Simonson. Yeah, yeah, Louise Simonson. And then this is Jim Shooter's Editor-in-Chief Days. Uh, these are interior dated January and February 1981. Oh, uh, Glynis Wine, I think, is uh, Glynis Oliver, more commonly, I think, these days. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right. Uh, Glynis Oliver. And that is the roll call. It is more or less the most famous group of x-men creators you could possibly have this is this is the era of x-men that every other era of x-men calls back to at some point which like literally everyone calls back this stuff proteus dark phoenix days of future past and they ignore the two weird issues about canada i have the thought 
that before we even dive into the story, should we just dive into that cover? Yeah. (laughs) The the thing that literally comes first, both of these issues have... Killer covers. Killer covers, and they're two of the most spoofed and, like, redone referenced covers in comic history. I would say, I think it's probably fair to say, number 141, a little more than 142, but both of them are very famous Going just in order, 141 is the shot of Wolverine and older Kitty Pride. Well, it's older Wolverine, too. He's got, like, the white streaks, and he's visibly got more wrinkles than Byrne normally draws. That's true. That's a good point. Um, I guess with Kitty, it's more immediately noticeable to me just because she's not 13, yeah. you know? <laughs> but it's the two of them. Um, there's a spotlight, like, yellow circle framing them against an otherwise dark background. It's very much like on the run sort of thing. Like Kitty looks scared while Wolverine has the claws out ready to fight. And behind them is this poster, this flyer with mug shots of 16 mutants, almost exclusively members of the X-Men. And there's red text going over all of the faces saying various things. Uh, mostly either slain or apprehended. So just immediately establishing the setting of these characters are going to be dead or otherwise imprisoned in this. The cover doesn't tell... Well, I was going to say the cover doesn't tell you, but no, they're older. In this alternate future timeline. And there's also one more flyer saying, Attention, you are now leaving a controlled zone. So for context on this cover, last month, if you were a regular X-Men reader back in um, the end of 1980, early 1981, last month you just read a story about the X-Men teaming up with Alpha Flight in, like, Alpha Flight's first appearance to fight the Wendigo. Um, and then you show up at the comic store the next next month to grab your monthly's issue, monthly issue of X-Men, and... The logo is distressed and fucked up. Wolverine has aged, like, 30 years. Kitty Pride is recognizable because the hair is curly, but that's, like, about it. Other than that, she looks quite different because she's, like, 30 years older. If you go back to the time when you weren't just expecting comics to pull shit like this, which I don't think in 1981 you expected comics to pull shit like this, this is just, like, a very sudden thing. Yeah, like, we'll get into more what's happening plot-wise, literally, and thematically, and metaphorically. But I think it probably just bears saying that almost everything and every aspect that we're going to talk about might seem like a given now, but either had not been done before or had not been done in this way or to this extreme. It's like the codifier of just so much of what present-day mental idea of what X-Men is comes from. I am, so in preparation for this, I did read every previous Sentinel story um, that the X-Men did, all three of them, um, in the 60s and 70s, and, like, I mean, we've covered 60s X-Men before, and we've covered X-Men from the 70s before this as well, so we've covered a fair bit of X-Men already, and the mutant metaphor has come up in both stories, and in both cases, it is, it's, like, just people hating on Nightcrawler in giant size and then in the sauron story it's limiting who they can find to like treat havoc's injuries um because of a momentary crisis that is like gonna go away soon but it's like he just needs treatment like right now 
this treats it very differently and much more seriously. Yeah, I suppose, shall we... Move past the first page? Yeah, shall we dispense with the description of this is what's going to be and start going page by page? Which, when you get to 141's opening splash page, you have the words, Days of Future Past, written, like, across the side of a rundown building where, like, other planks of fucked up wood and stuff would be. That's just a really dynamic opening page with Days of Future Past, the text emboldened against the background, and we see uh, this relatively older woman walking nearby. The ground and everything just looks fucked up. There's just various smashed objects, looks like maybe broken windows, crates. It just looks like a cityscape in decline. And with the opening narration, we get, This is New York, the Big Apple. Once upon a time, it was a nice place to live. It is no longer. The street is Park Avenue in the upper 70s. When Kate Pride was a child, it was one of the swankiest neighborhoods in the city, if not the world. Now it's a slum, abandoned, derelict, dying, much like the city, the country, the planets around it. Welcome to the 21st century. And behind all this is the Empire State Building in the far background, and there's no lights on in it. There's no lights on anywhere. It's all blank, which, like, New York, fucking impossible. Yeah, like, all of the tones are blues and violets and browns. Yeah, New York never looks like this. No, Like, New York does, in fact, look fucked up in the 21st century, but in a different way. It's mostly just that there's trash everywhere. There's not what looks like a busted-up, like, anatomical model on the ground. I mean, if all the lights were on in all the windows, you could arguably get me to believe that this was, like, a somewhere in Manhattan. But, uh, <laughs> no. The lights off is the big thing. <laughs> oh, it's that's the most frightening thing, yeah. The rest, I'm like, maybe there just hasn't been, like... It's Wednesday and the garbage people haven't shown up yet. Yeah, which already two things I'll note that this page adds in fact-wise is the use of the name Kate Pride. At this point in continuity, contemporary in the 80s, she'd just been going by Kitty. So Kate is very specifically a differentiation of this older version of her. And the welcome to the 21st century thing... Later, it will specify that all of this is taking place in the year 2013. Yeah. So just that sort of reference point of we're comparing 1981 and 2013. So... Kitty's like 47. Yeah. So she's like older, but she's not like senior citizen old. And time-wise, the events that are going back and forth between are meant to have a roughly 30-year or so passage of time. So it's established that Kitty is out here to meet Logan on a rendezvous, but there's like a trap door and we get like a brief scene where, so she establishes that she's wearing an inhibitor collar that is preventing her from using her phasing power um, while fighting this gang of, uh, they're called rogues. They look like your typical, I'm going to say your typical comic book 80 street gang. Like these guys are right out of like the Dark Knight Returns or shit like that. Like, the main one we see has got, like, a mohawk in face paint, and for some reason, Feather's coming out of his mohawk. They're ready to fight Kate, who informs them that she is on Sentinel business, which we'll get back to in a minute. 
doesn't last long because she can fight to defend herself. She gives a good kick, but then Logan arrives at the last panel of the page, and then it's really business time because it's older, gruffer Wolverine. He doesn't even pull his claws here and he still kicks their asses. Yeah. It's essentially established that Logan is smuggling her some sort of part of a device, which later on in the story, her and the rest of the X-Men are essentially going to use to release their inhibitor collars, essentially, to be able to use their powers again. And after they make the switch, Kitty makes the way back to the literal concentration camp where she lives. The South Bronx Mutant Interment Center. She essentially lives in this concentration camp, um, has been smuggling contact with Logan as part of this elaborate plan that we'll get into more later in the issue. But these scenes that sort of pan and do like lots of narration as she's making her way back to the camp establish that in the year 2013 there are three classes of people, one of which is baseline humans with no mutant genes who are allowed to reproduce, and then the other two are anomalous humans who are humans but possess mutant genetic potential, so I guess just like dormant X genes or whatever, and then we have mutant mutants, and it is explicitly said that they are not allowed to breed. So we have that very explicit uh, eugenicist policy laid out here very strictly. And after checking in with one of the Sentinel guards, because as you said, this is a Sentinel story, and it also specifically says, I should mention, after an exhaustive and intentionally humiliating security examination, so just every bit of dialogue or narration in this case, just every ward, every panel, is just emphasizing dehumanization and concentration camp settings. The bus she takes, all the humans are wearing outfits with an H on it. Like, people are marking themselves as not mutant. Oh, and the bus is being drawn by horses, because that is just the state the world is in at this point, uh, where a bunch of horses are now pulling buses around. Yeah, uh, tying back into just, like, the run-down New York there's a sense of much more limited sort of like modern power supplies and such. And the last panel on this page is of Kitty walking by graves, all of which have the names of X-Men characters and of Fantastic Four characters, because it's going to be established that in this future the Sentinels have taken down not only mutants but gotten rid of all sort of metahuman superheroes and such yeah the grave scene is really like haunting i have to i think the fact that there are graves for these people is maybe the least realistic aspect of this like this would be a mass grave this wouldn't be there wouldn't be headstones or any markers with their names on them but like to get the point across in the comic that you're reading this makes perfect sense and it is haunting i assume the fantastic four were targeted because of franklin and the genetic potential because like most of them are related to franklin and therefore have like at least some mutant kicking around somewhere in their genes yeah that is a good point about like I suppose, like, the literalism of the image, like, it definitely makes sense in what they're doing as a comic is just, like, a background detail to immediately convey information. Although, like... Kurt's dead. Charles is dead. Scott's dead. 
Warren's dead. You know that that they are all gone. Um, several of these are characters who will appear later in the story in like the flashback sequences in the present day, and like in this future, they're just gone, and they have been for years. These these graves are like in a shitty state. Like the Charles Xavier ones, literally falling apart. They all have like cracks and dents in them. Yeah, everything just looks really run down, and it's just they are very quickly letting you know like this is only page like five maybe and they're just letting you know the state of the world uh yeah page five and we already know like who's allowed to breed and just like that basically everyone in a marvel comic book is dead and they probably did not die well yeah after this the next scene uh features kate meeting up with the rest of essentially the remnants of the x-men the only other uh, characters that readers know that are going to be still alive in this future and our cast is storm we have colossus um we have magneto yeah magneto is now paralyzed somehow and is in a chair and so this is before x-men 150 so magneto does not actually have for context if you're not a big x-men reader Magneto does not have his Holocaust survivor backstory yet. That doesn't get revealed that or retconned in, really, until X-Men 150. But here he is, you know, leading the X-Men in a story before he even has a sympathetic backstory that explains, like, the years of mutant supremacy and terrorism that you had at this point seen for nearly two decades of X-Men comics. I think we're, what, like, 17, 18 years since X-Men number one at this point? 1963? 1963 to 1981, yeah, yeah, I suppose, 18 years? 18 years in, and this villain is now leading the X-Men, because that is, this future is just so bad that that doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, and the other two uh, characters here of notes are Franklin Richards of the Fantastic Four, and then uh, Rachel Summers, who, do they ever use the name summers here so her last name isn't said in this story um this is rachel summers who is an ongoing character in x-men at this point like in the present day in our current stuff if you go to a comic shop like today this is her first appearance and they don't use her last name i think because her mother died four issues ago at the end of the dark phoenix saga three issues ago three issues ago and that death was like an editorial mandate and wasn't like planned to happen when they planned out presumably this story so claremont just like cut the last name and you have a red-headed telepath in this story and i guess you just sort of wind up assuming that she's jean gray's kid it makes sense yeah i suppose like i suppose it would have been possible even to like read it live at the time and not even necessarily immediately assume because, like, you could definitely be like, oh, there's a redhead, they're, they're a telepath, you know, but just... This is, I think, the first time that's happened. The redheaded telepath is not actually a cliche yet. Yeah, like, this is this is only case two after Gene. <laughs> like, it's possible that someone, if they didn't think about it and didn't have our knowledge, could have not known at this point. This is our, f- our second Random Summers introduction. Random Summers? Yeah, Alex was a retcon too. Alex Summers, Havoc was like, Scott's just like, oh yeah, I have a brother. Do you want to go to his college graduation? My brother I have never mentioned before today. Right, right. So this is this is the second Summers who just sort of shows up. And they will keep showing up. 
Uh, and I ask you to please never make me read about Vulcan. He is in one of the books I am making you read in two weeks. I sure do fucking know that. Uh, Vulcan. Uh, um, Summer's Family Tree nonsense. That that issue has the house diagram. Anyway, we're getting off track. We will be getting into that in two weeks, everyone. Yeah, in two weeks you get to look forward to us talking about Vulcan. It will be better than that sentence makes it sound. But... <laughs> One more quick note of establishing stuff here, I will say, is that it's specifically said that Kate and Colossus are married in this future. Ugh. I think a lot of this almost just goes as assumed, but with the concentration camp internment camp metaphor, everyone is wearing very specific clothing. They're all wearing these green outfits that have a gigantic letter M on the right breast. So we have the forced uniforms and a class signifier on the chest. Absolutely nothing is subtle. Uh, this is a different future than Bishops where they have the M brand painted, uh, like, tattooed onto their faces. And then they all have the collars on as well, so everyone's wearing, like, this big, really uncomfortable looking collar. That prevents them from using their powers. At this point, I'll go ahead and say art-wise, a lot of these pages are very dense in panels. Like, they'll literally have, like, seven, eight panels a page, and they actually pull it off. Like, I don't think any of it feels too crowded or too rushed, which is a testament, but it does feel wild just flipping through as we're talking about it, just how quickly so much information is being... Uh, conveyed like if this was a modern comic then uh, this would be so long yeah this is this is the first installment of a, of a series that we're gonna call great art but fuck you uh john byrne great art but fuck you yeah i think we've <laughs> said almost nothing but positive things about the specific creators we've cited so far yeah no they've all been pretty cool yeah like i think we acknowledge just like steve ditko got fucked over but he had some bad politics whereas john yeah. byrne is just fuck you um <laughs> if you don't know why we're saying that honestly just do yourself a favor and just keep not thinking about john byrne too much you don't need that energy in your life read the x-men he drew with claremont in the 70s and 80s and that's it you're good yeah uh but essentially in this scene where these remnants of the X-Men are all meeting back up again. The basic conceit of the story is established in that using uh, the technology that they've scrambled together, they're going to be able to use their powers despite the collars. And it's going to specifically be Rachel. If I say Rachel Summers again at any point in this episode, it's by accident and just familiarity, but just Rachel as she's referred to here is going to try to psychically send Kate's consciousness back in time, with their idea essentially being that everything is terrible, the situation just seems like one that they can't possibly overcome in the present day, and that their best option is to try and stop things from ever reaching this point at all. And so Rachel attempts to psychically send Kate back through time, and essentially what happens is that she's going to swip consciousnesses with her younger self, the 13-year-old, just-joined-the-X-Men a matter of issues ago, Kitty Pride. At this point in her codename journey, she's going by Sprite. So she's a nice, non-caffeinated beverage. Sprite is caffeinated, isn't it? It's 
I think it's carbonated, but not caffeinated. Oh, God. That's Jay and Miles explain Sprite. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, before the actual body swap happens, we move back in time to contemporary to when the issue would have been coming out. Uh, The date that's specifically given, another sign that this is an old comic because they don't let them date things specifically anymore is that this takes place on friday october 31st 1980 this is on fucking halloween (laughs) this is on halloween why did i not realize this is a halloween story it is a halloween story and it is the tail end of an election season right before a presidential election the politics stuff is going to be very important and we cut to Kitty Pride walking into the danger room. Oh, it's a danger room opening sequence. We get to see everyone demonstrating their powers. Here's how you know who everyone is, guys. Yeah, again, just a really quick establishment of what everyone can do because you're watching them each do it in a different corner of the page. Classic gym shooter. We need everyone's first comic opening. I kind of love it, actually. I think they should go back to doing this a bit more often. Honestly, I prefer it over the ugly recap pages we get nowadays. Yeah, yeah, even, even, yeah. Just do a splash of someone walking into a danger room. It doesn't have to do have anything to do with the rest of the story. Uh, But the X-Men at this point in time are the 13-year-old child that hangs out with them. Um, Warren Worthington III, Angel, uh, he has wings and can fly. Storm, uh, Aurora Monroe, she can control weather and also fly. Wolverine, um, who I think just his claws are adamant. Actually, no, I think at this point they have established that he's got adamantian bones, because I think it comes up later. Angry Canadian, short. Uh, and then Colossus, friendly communist, turns into steel. Yeah, and he's not in this opening splash page, but the other member that will be established is here is Nightcrawler. Ah, yes. Who is the sexy blue elf man that everyone knows and lusts after. If you're listening to this show, you know who Nightcrawler is. (laughs) He can teleport. Yeah. There we go. And essentially, Kitty has walked in on a danger room session that's already in progress. It's very dangerous because all of the machines are going after everybody. Apparently the danger room is programmed to kill. It is programmed to absolutely end these bitches. And Kitty at this point is not combat trained. Just came to the mansion like days ago. And so the rest of the X-Men are having to fend off the danger room attacks themselves while trying to save Kitty. It's a whole big thing until the power is turned off by Nightcrawler who teleports in and... He's arrived and is going to mention that he's late to the session because he was watching news coverage of a senatorial conference where Professor Xavier and, at this point, noted not-mutant Moira McTaggart are in attendance. Uh, there's some really fun Moira shit. There's a thing in the second issue that I'll have to point out to you that I think is, like, um, Jonathan Hickman is a retcon genius. I, I guess I guess we'll explain later. We'll explain in two weeks for sure. We'll have to for that. So then they start up Kitty's session. So apparently Professor Xavier has, who's not here because he's off having his little debate um, on television, uh, has set up like a danger room sequence that he wants Kitty to run. And so she closes her eyes because she's too scared and just walks through the danger room wondering when stuff is going to start trying to attack her. 
because she's just instinctively turned on her phasing power and all of this crazy wild danger room shit that would probably kill her, I don't care, but there's padding on it, is just going through her. Uh, and so everyone in the control room is just, like, losing their shit laughing. It's a very funny scene. Very good at, like, establishing them all, like, hanging out with... Again, this it's... It is weird that she's 13 years old and she's in the X-Men when everyone else is, like... I guess Colossus is supposed to be 18. He does not look 18. Yeah, Colossus looks like fully grown man, like... I think the rest are meant to be 20s. Well, except Wolverine. Yeah, like, these are adults. Like, even if they're relatively young adults in some cases, these are adults. And everyone has their moments of being part amused, part proud of Kitty... And mid-talking to them, we get the panel of Kitty surrounded by concentric circles and, like, magenta and blue as, in the narration's wards, her soul is flung out over the abyss of eternity because this is when the mind swap occurs. And she passes out. The X-Men essentially get ready to, like, take her to the infirmary. They're wondering what's happened. And when Kitty wakes up, Nightcrawler is the closest to her. She immediately flings her arms around him and embraces him, which is already a sign that something's different. Because at this point in X-Men history, Kitty is still scared of how Kurt looks. And this is something that the 13-year-old self would never do. But essentially, she does the whole, you're alive moment. And immediately begins telling the X-Men about how she is Kate Pride, the older self, who has come back in time to save the world. And everyone's like, what the fuck is wrong with Kitty? <laughs> Basically, she explains that Halloween 1980, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, uh, who we'll see in a minute, will ass- murder presidential candidate Robert Kelly alongside Charles and Moira. That's actually a, that's actually a weird detail, because... Um, it's established in other stories featuring Rachel, who is from this timeline where this happened, that Charles was alive after this event. But okay. Of course, all of this taking place where Charles and Moira have already been established to be at with the news coverage. So it is very pressing. The X-Men then have to go do their uh, airplane ride there. A couple things here. The X-Men are still just like, what's going on with Kitty? We'll have to have Xavier read your mind to verify this. Although Wolverine is just like, well, she doesn't smell like she's lying. So, so far, their main thing is Wolverine She looks like a kid, but she stands, talks, moves, smells like a woman. What the fuck has changed about her scent, Wolverine? Yeah, What are you talking about, you fucking weirdo? I don't think... If you do a Freaky Friday, (laughs) I don't think the daughter suddenly smells like the mom. I think the daughter body... There's no way to phrase this. Like, I can see that. Like, like, Kitty is definitely... Like, the way that Byrne is drawing her, her physicality is different than it has been earlier in this issue, in this scene. And, like, the dialogue and stuff, like, it's very different. Like, it is distinct. The smells thing's fucking weird. Yeah, we don't need the smell like a woman. But I'll also go ahead and quickly note that at this point, because Scott has just left, we now have Storm as the newly appointed leader, which is very new. This is very much a turning point for the team, not only in retrospect, but literally in the story. 
you can tell things are very much in flux and they're all dealing with adjustments to the status quo at the same time that they're faced with this threat. But fortunately, for some random reason, Angel is back to use his two powers, which are being hot and having money. And so they fly <laughs> his jet to go quickly make it to Washington, D.C. See now, the flight counts when it's the flight that he paid for on the jet, because okay. then he can get all of them Okay, that's there. a good point. While Storm is there, what is the fucking point of Angel is an ongoing concern, and the answer is, he has a wallet? I would say that he's there to just stand around and look pretty, except that's not going to be a conscious decision from either of these creators, because I don't think John Byrne has a gay bone in his body, and Chris Claremont is interested in the psychosexual lives of the women. I know he does not care about it for Warren. Uh, I, there's that, like, splash of Warren wearing, like, nothing but shorts uh, in the Dark Phoenix saga flying over Angel's Eerie in Nevada. Okay, maybe one of these people is a little fruity. Maybe. <laughs> but... Claremont writes by men by accident. He writes yeah. by women by choice. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and essentially, while they're on the plane ride, Kate gives them all the spiel of what's happened in her future. Just a little more detailed version of what's already been established in the flashbacks where... After the assassination, there is major outcry leading to various anti-mutant hysteria and legislation. Uh, the Sentinels are reactivated, reprogrammed, and ultimately the Sentinels take it upon themselves to not only strike out against mutants, but also superhumans at large. And the Sentinels effectively end up reigning over all of humanity in general in North America and are now setting their sights across the entire world at this point in the future. And it's specifically established that they reckon that Robert Kelly is a more reasonable dude than the people who wind up essentially replacing him because of, like, the reaction to his death. Like, he he is concerned about mutants because it's just, wow, there's a lot of people with superpowers around. A lot of, a lot of laser eyeballs and shit. Like, he's worried about, like, all superhumans. And he's not necessarily specifically, like, is racist the right term for mutants? I guess, I mean, that is what they generally use. Yeah, racist against mutants. Like, fantasy racism. Yeah. Yeah, like, obviously the metaphor doesn't actually hold to real life, but in terms of what it's thematically doing, fantasy yeah. racism stuff. Um, I will say the one thing I actually do dislike is the Sentinels targeting all superhumans. I think the metaphor is stronger if they still only target mutants. And they only stop the superhumans who try to stop them. That's yeah. the change I would make to this comic, if I could make any change. Part of me wonders if it's not just, like, a narrative shorthand so that they don't have to do the alternative of explaining why the Avengers and other stuff aren't present, you know? Like, it feels very much just like a narrative shorthand to then not have to question where other superhumans are. Yeah, I mean, you could establish that, the that like, Captain America was like, mm, yeah, maybe let's not kill all the mutants. I would hope that he would be. He usually is, kind of. Yeah, um, I'm not going to allow myself to go on an Avengers X-Men train. Oh, God. But after this, we shoot back into the future where the remaining X-Men are trying to make an escape. Off-panel, Magneto 
essentially does the job of distracting to allow the rest to escape. So there's a few things on this. One, just being couldn't help but think about just the compounding of, you know, of the oppression metaphorically, and then also adding on the specific heightened dangers and situation of disabled people, Magneto being disabled in the story. Um, there's specifically dialogue where Colossus says, a noble death is still a death, Logan, and I'm so sick of death after they talk about Magneto's sacrifice. I guess just to go ahead and just address the metaphor stuff, in terms of real-life minority statuses here, it's mostly a group of white people, Storm is the one exception, and then... Kitty's Jewish. Yeah, that's... Which is very relevant, that's I think, very to the relevant. Holocaust imagery in this story, yeah. Storm and Kitty are the main figures here. And so is Claremont, the writer of this. Yes, and... I wouldn't say the story really talks about those identities explicitly, but, you know, it just is relevant, you know, especially with Kitty being such a central figure here. Yeah, weirdly the next issue after this story, which is set at Christmas, talks about Kitty's Judaism more specifically, because she is alone at Christmas. It's it's about their mutant identities, but it is metaphorically about, like, things that have happened to real minorities. Having read, certainly having read all the previous Sentinel stories, which, like, every time the Sentinels show up, these are robots designed to target mutants. Like, there's no, like, especially since Magneto still doesn't have his sympathetic backstory yet, um, and all of his previous stories, he's still been kind of in that weird thing where he's acting like a fascist. Like, if you look at 60s Magneto especially, and, like, what Jack Kirby and Stan Lee do with him, um, he's, like, marching around in a dark red outfit, taking over countries and yelling about how he's superior to everyone else. Like, that's that's not a oppression metaphor going on with Magneto in those stories. Um, this is the first story that I think is just about the mutant metaphor in, like, a huge, important way. Um, the other three other Sentinel stories that have happened before this, the first one stops being about in the mutant metaphor about 20 seconds after the Sentinels show up because they decide that they just want to rule the planet and they don't care about mutants especially in the rest of that story. It's just three issues of the X-Men trying to save humanity from the Sentinels wanting to rule. And then the other two are more about it, uh, especially there's a, there's a Neil Adams Sentinel story that was really quite good, but nothing goes nearly as far as this. I mean, there's in, in those stories, you know, they capture some mutants and are like, great, this is the first step in our like quest to capture mutants. And this one, you turn the page, and here is a, essentially a mutant death camp. That's a very different vibe. And from this point on, X-Men is about the minority metaphor in a way that it wasn't before. Like, the biggest X-Men story before this is, is uh, Dark Phoenix, which, it's very much about Gene. I don't think it's really about mutants in any big way. Like, this this is a weird thing to say. I think you could have a version of the Dark Phoenix saga happen to an Avengers character. Yeah. This story yeah. would never happen to an Avengers character. This is this is an X-Men thing. This is a mutant thing. This is a thing that really only the X-Men in terms of superhero books can do. Yeah. And I think the use of Sentinels as the villains here, well, Sentinels slash just general societal prejudice. It's like the Sentinels are 
the obstacle that they can still like fight and at various points we'll be doing like actual you know super powered fights but the sentinels here are playing the role like on the superhuman scale of the guards and uh the administrators of the concentration camps and of the general societal caste system and that is the sentinels who are going to come after these characters as they are running away who are going to kill without mercy who i think there's something fitting to the sentinels as the villains of choice and that they're all you know they are androids of the same design they are a seemingly endless army of beings that all look the same it's not a uniform because it's armor as opposed to clothes but like visually similar to just uniformly similar aesthetic of the oppressive torturous and murdering class so i think of like all the x-men villains that you could have tried to tap into for a holocaust story i think it makes a lot of sense that they were the go-to, both narratively and metaphorically, visually speaking. Uh, and then, of course, they have to be built by humans, at least in the first place, so they're still inherently a human evil. I do tend to, I think, in, in the end, prefer, like, there's other stories that do similar things like this, but, like, there's humans involved, and this, to an extent, it is just, like, the Sentinels have completely replaced the government structure, and, like, there's other X-Men stories where it's a bit more nuanced, and there are Sentinels that are a part of the government structure that I prefer, but this is really well done. Yeah, it's really good, and, like, again, just to reiterate, like we've said, like, this is two issues long, you know, so, like, even though it's less decompressed than, like, two issues would be now, you know, like, I'm not surprised that they don't do more nuance of every little area than they do. But to get back to the plot, essentially while everyone is making their escape, Sentinels find them, and... Franklin is immediately disintegrated, and then we get this great panel of, like, Sentinels looming over our heroes, um, just like this... It is kind of like a how the fuck do they fight them, especially since Franklin is definitely the most powerful person here. Like, I can't- I don't know how much of his mutant power was established in 1981, but, like, in hindsight at least, this is the kid who could, like, create universes in his bedroom with, like, his reality-warping mutant power. Fuck you, he's still a mutant. Uh, <laughs> and he, of course, is the first to go on panel. We know that Magneto's already died off panel. Yeah, and they hear, like, the sounds of Sentinels overhead before we see them on panel. So Franklin is specifically vaporized before we actually see the Sentinels for the first time on the next panel. So just immediate reign of death, um, just these machines are going to kill these people without any questions or any hope of survival. And we start to get into fight scenes of these characters literally fighting for their lives, uh, trying to hold back. It's, it's like a normal X-Men fight scene against Sentinels where they're like throwing themselves at their big heads and stuff, except... They're just sort of trying to escape with their lives and not actually, like, win because they won't be able to win. It's just a different vibe. Tonally, there's, like, a very different thing going on. Yeah, it's similar visuals. It's different end result. It's really, really skillfully done. Yeah. After this point, towards the end of the issue, we shift back to Washington, D.C. in 1980. In the Pentagon, specifically. In the Pentagon, where Raven Darkholm has infiltrated the U.S. government, 
has a cushy high up position of influence and Raven Darkholm, of course, is Mystique. We get a panel that shows her before and after coming outside sides of a door. And on the left before, we have her just as a human passing woman. And then on the right afterward, we have her already fully blue and in her sexy white robe with skull belt. Her little, her little skull on her forehead. She's the blue shapeshifty lady, by the way. I guess, if you don't know X-Men that well. She is Rebecca Romaine being sexy and naked and scaly. Not actually those things here, but... L- literally none of those things. Um, literally but, none of those things. But, but if Rebecca Romaine wants to keep playing her, that would have been fine with me. Yeah, and it's stated in the narration that Mystique has founded and is the leader of a new version of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So, a group name from the Silver Age, but now a drastically different group, consisting of Mystique Destiny, who the narration says is the only member of the Brotherhood Raven calls friend, because Jim Shooter did not allow gay people in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, Destiny's her wife. Yeah. And that's explicit now in the comics, which is great. Yeah. Then we have Pyro... We have Avalanche, and we have the Blob, who was the only one who was a member back in the 60s. Otherwise, this is a new group of mutant villain characters. So Destiny's blind, but she can see the future. Avalanche, uh, like, shakes vibration powers, rock-destroying powers. Pyro can create, uh, can control flame, but not create it. And then Blob is big and immovable. Um, and normally an awful awful character of fat people but not too inhuman looking here it's not the worst blob i've seen certainly not from this time ago yeah one thing i will note about this brotherhood on a metaphorical level is just i love how gay the baddies are and i mean that very literally and that destiny and mystique are now canon gay this pyro isn't canon gay now but he should be should be and if you just read all of this with just basic when i say this i don't necessarily mean this issue but this period of x-men just the way that he is written and specific information that claremont gives this is clearly meant to be a gay man or at least a queer man and Doesn't then he write romance novels yeah he's like a romance novelist or That's something so great yeah and then you have Avalanche and Blob, who Avalanche I don't know much about. I think the X-Men Evolution Avalanche is the only time he's ever been a real character. I liked him in X-Men Evolution. He doesn't really do anything here aside from move some rocks. Yeah, I'm just gonna say that he's gay to round the group out. And then Blob is decidedly not gay because he is the raging misogynist. Not that gay men can't be, but he's like the straight man ruining the group. Specifically talks about how he won't take orders from abroad, the broad being Mystique. Why the fuck did you come, you ass? Literally not sure how he got here. Pyro settles it with some firepower stuff. There's some arguing before Mystique is just like, shut up all of you or I will end it myself. And then we cut to the United States Senate where there is a hearing involving Senator Kelly... Uh, Professor Xavier and Moira are there, as we already said. The topic is mutants and the question of mutants as a danger to national security and public safety. And 
Xavier sees Storm and the rest of the X-Men arrive through the side. Through telepathic communication, uh, asks them what the hell's going on. And this essentially is when Charles is going to read their minds and find out about the whole weird future thing. But before we can really dive into that, walls are coming down, the place is under attack, Mystique's new team of Brotherhood of Evil Mutants has arrived to tear shit down, and I just need to note, the rest of them visually, whatever, like obviously Mystique's design is cool, but Destiny has one of the great supervillainous costumes of all time, because this old woman is effectively in this swimsuit with a matching color cape and hel cape slash helmet. The helmet is attached to the cape with this gorgeous golden full face mask. Actually, I want to note that both Avalanche and Pyro have really great fabulous designs here as well. And then just over in the corner is Blob wearing a unitard. Blob sucks. It's like... Fred is no good until he gets his, like, handlebar mustache and starts, like, just being a bartender like he is in the current stuff, at which point he rocks. I love him right now. Yeah, Blob... Not to go on a super long thing, but the thing of Blob as a character is just, like, the current stuff is fine. It's really hard to get the just 40 years of nothing but fat phobia out of my head when I look at the character, you know? The stink is so bad. It's, it's so bad. It's just like, is this character salvageable at all, you know? But... And, like, I'll be real, especially with Chris Claremont, that is a recurring issue in the Claremont run, is there is a lot of fat phobia that didn't need to be there. Um, and there is in, in, in this as well. We won't get into it, but, like, actually, well, Wolverine opens with calling Blob Fatso. I guess that's the member he picks out to insult. Thanks, Wolverine. Yeah... Uh, like we said uh, before, the X-Men had arrived to watch the hearing and to monitor and everything. And as soon as the Brotherhood arrives, the X-Men have super quickly changed into costume and are now ready to fight. And we end on this panel with the two teams squaring up. And that is the end of the first issue and the first half of Days of Future Past. We are now an hour into recording. These are dense. There's a lot that happens in those two issues. And it's like, it isn't in terms of, like, X-Men still being published, but in terms of, like, what X-Men comics are, like, technically and usually about, I think this might be the two most important issues of X-Men. Yeah, like, like no without... matter what your parameters were of, like, however you define importance, it would be utterly impossible to not include them in a top ten. And thematically... I think it's almost definitely the top two. Without this, there's no way any like there's no Morrison E is for extinction. There's no none of House of no none of House of X powers of ten. It's it's all like this issue is where almost all of that really comes from, in terms of just like this is what these characters are about and these are the themes that they touch on. Um, so our second cover is Old Wolverine getting slowly vaporized by this big sentinel carrying an unconscious old storm and it says on the bottom this issue everybody dies with a nice sort of lime green background yeah like this is another iconic cover that's been 
redone a lot. Not as much as the other one, like I said, but... It still made it to the Marvel Zombies covers, at least. Yeah. The other cover, I think, is better in that I think just the way it visually is conveying all the information, I think the other one is just immediately more striking. This one almost has... This is gonna sound more insulting than I mean it, but it's got, like, that touch of, like, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, you know, batshit insane thing you wouldn't expect on the cover to get you to read it. Like, this one's like, come watch all of the X-Men die, in the same way those are like, here's Superman, um, telling Jimmy that his Father's Day gift for him is terrible. Also, guess Jimmy is, like, Superman's adopted son now. Uh, like, levels of, well, I guess you just kind of have to read this to know what's gonna happen. This, this has that vibe, but, like, it's a really good cover, considering that. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of talk of the metaphorical stuff and the plot stuff, so I guess it'll, I'll just say it bears saying how good John Byrne's art is on a lot of levels. Like, these are some of the most iconic renderings of all the characters involved, like a lot of people's mental image of the characters is going to be heavily pulling from these renditions. Just the fluidity of movement is really good. The characters look really good. I think there's a nice amount of like variance in characters physically and facial structure and body language and the way that they present themselves. This just is art that shows a lot of effort and thought carefully put into essentially every aspect of it. So, good job, John Byrne. Fuck you. But <laughs> the second part of this crossover, the splash page essentially has, like, Kitty Pride in the center, and then we have, on the two sides of her, quick little get you up to speeds of the future events and the present events with the current X-Men now facing the Brotherhood while the older X-Men are running for their lives from the Sentinels. And at this point, we first start in the present of 1980 with this two-page spread, the top half of which is just this long uh, horizontal image again of the X-Men facing off against the Brotherhood we're doing, like you mentioned, the very quickly establish who everyone is sort of thing. And it's all just really well drawn. Like, even the posture, like, the way Nightcrawler stands is very different from the way Angel stands, is different from the way that Storm is standing, different from the way that Wolverine is standing. Mystique is pointing menacingly, which very, is good. Very, very dramatic Mystique. I like it a lot. Yeah, there's just... Like, even in a single panel still image, there's always movement of looks like Mystique's dress is billowing, you know? Just d details like that. We get Senator Kelly... Pointing so dramatically it crosses the panel border, fully into the two-page spread above it. How dare you threaten me! Marshals, arrest these people! Oh, also, how dare you freaks turn the United States Senate into a battlefield? Which, like... First of all, someone doesn't know his U.S. history. People have actually, like, dueled in that fucking place. Uh, second, I don't know, one group of people seems to be trying to fight the terrorists, so fuck you. So, uh, it, everyone starts fighting, it's just the X-Men versus the Brotherhood, with the X-Men trying to, like, 
prevent the Brotherhood from killing Senator Kelly. There's a very cool bit where Nightcrawler is like teleporting too fast around Avalanche for him to keep track while like Nightcrawler is punching him and Destiny is able to see where Nightcrawler is going to teleport to and tells Avalanche where to hit so that he can hit him when Nightcrawler shows up uh, which is like a really good effective use of Destiny's power. Destiny's great. She's been underutilized uh, mostly because she's dead until like last year in the comics but it's been like a very good year of having destiny back yeah destiny was great before she died has been great since coming back her star is on the rise she is a very sexy badass evil old woman and i mean old old for context she's literally literally irene adler from sherlock holmes literally and in the interest of time, let's not even try to explain that right now. Mystique but maybe Sherlock one Holmes. day, Mystique, Mystique is Sherlock Holmes. That's how they met. Yeah, and yeah, jumping around. There's Thank just, you, Chris Claremont. Thank you. Yeah, just the Brotherhood X Men fight is in full swing. I like Pyro versus Colossus with Pyro saying. So, Colossus, you've the power to transform yourself into some form of metal. I wonder, can that metal melt? As he's just throwing this gigantic flaming hand at him. It's all just very dramatic. I like it. Pyro loves, like, a flame monster moment in this comic, because he does another one later, and that's that's fun. That's a fun way to visualize. Like, he's not just doing jets of fire, he's actually doing something neat with it. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile... In the commotion, you know, everyone's trying to get away from the fight for safety. Moira is talking to Charles, and there's... Before we get into something else a moment later, just gonna note this Moira bubble saying, Charles, if you're right, if time travel is possible, if as a result history is mutable, we'll have to redefine our concept of reality itself. I think you mean... Charles, if you're right, if time travel is possible, if as a result history is mutable, we'll have to redefine our concept of reality itself. See now, there's ways that you're allowed to say things that I'm not allowed to say things. That's... That was a terrible <laughs> Scottish accent. I apologize to half my family. <laughs> this See... isn't written phonetically nearly as much as her dialogue normally was around this time. I'm a little disappointed. It's much easier to read. <laughs> There's nowhere near as many asterisks as there should be. Uh, nowhere near as many apostrophes as there should be. There's whole words. That doesn't happen. Why? Does she say you're where it's, it's Y-U-I-R? Because I love that one. That's my favorite one. Yeah. Um, listeners, if you don't know why we're going on about Moira talking about time travel, we'll talk about Hoxpox eventually. But the point essentially being that Moira will eventually be retconned into being a time-traveling mutant herself. So in retrospect, it's very much just Moira pushing along Xavier being like, Girl, wouldn't that be crazy? Uh, and Charles knows as well. They are literally having this conversation because um, I guess the just in case the policewoman next to them Actually, why are they having this conversation where, like, they're, like, confused or, like, frightened by time travel? If Charles knows, wouldn't they just be like, oh, no, not time travel? That's really annoying. And Okay. I, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. The scene is fine. 
Uh, anyway, the policewoman who's with them is Mystique, and she hits them with a gas to knock them out, um, so that they don't get in the way. Um, at which point, oh, this is a bit that I definitely want to point out. So, Destiny comes up, and she is, Mystique's like, great, Destiny, you can see the future, are we going to win, How how's it going? And Destiny is unsure, because there is a random factor present, an anomaly, that strikes to the very heart of the time stream. So long as it exists, nothing is certain. I've tried to pinpoint it without success. Um, so in this story, this is obviously meant to be Kate Pride inside of Kitty Pride's head, changing events. However, thinking about it, the reason she can't pinpoint it is because there are two anomalies that strike to the heart of the time stream in this building right now. And she is standing next to one of them. And is this the only time we see... I, this might be the only time we see Moira and Destiny, who... Destiny is, like, Moira's archenemy. This might be the only time we see Moira and Destiny, like, in a scene together before Hoxpox establishes their relationship in retrospect. It might be, uh... I can't think of anything else. Um, and it's Destiny doesn't even notice Moira, which is Moira's power partially part of it is that it hides like the fact that she's a mutant like her mutant ability is undetectable by like any traditional means and it causes destiny to not be able to see her with her powers until she is made aware of her and she's able to like figure it out through context we talked about like a weird bit with that retcon for a second just now this scene right here i think is made stronger and more interesting with the Moira X retcon where this is now Moira going through her life for the 10th time yeah uh, at this point we flash back to essentially Kitty gives a brief recap for the reader if they didn't get last issue just finishing the recap that the first flash page started of what's going on in the past or in the future rather so we can then flash back to the future with, at this point, Storm, Colossus, Wolverine, Rachel, and then uh, the Cape Pride body with Kitty inside it is... Unconscious. Yeah, being, like, carried by the uppers as they go along. They're fighting Sentinels. Essentially, they make their way to an important base. It's the Fantastic Four's Baxter building that the Sentinels have taken over and is, like their center of control or whatever on the like american east coast yeah and even if they can't win they figure they can at least do some major damage there but before the time comes to do damage we switch times again back to 1980 more fighting it's cool it's cool stuff we get um blob and colossus fight the the military come out with some tanks that apparently have concussion cannons on them whatever that means but they hit colossus with it and it doesn't kill him so that's good uh some of the soldiers come up with flamethrowers because obviously that's a really safe weapon to have while there's like crowds around that you're trying to not accidentally kill geniuses and then fucking pyro just turns it into a giant monster because no shit you idiots using flamethrowers in a crowded area while pyro is there and like if if you 
have anyone competent. You have a camera inside the Senate building. You have already seen that there is someone who is making claws out of flames, and now he's making a giant flame monster, which is suddenly the main thing the X-Men have to fight because it's huge and really powerful. In the midst of all this fighting, I think there's two main things of note in this fight scene. One of which is when Wolverine unsheaths his claws, Storm has an alpha of the pack moment. I'm just using that as a phrase. Obviously, none of the way people talk about that is real. But basically, in the middle of this fight, Storm just stops Logan to be like, Listen here, you little bitch. If I don't tell you to take a claw out, you put that shit away. I am the leader. Don't even fucking think about it. You should be fucking skilled enough to deal with this without, like, pulling out your fucking knife hands. For God's sake, it's... It's just a couple regular mutants. All of these people are like, would die if you stabbed them, you dumbass. And honestly, when you put it the whole just like, you're good enough that you don't need them, she's right. And like, part of it is her thinking PR-wise of like, they're literally at the Senate. It's not gonna look good to have Pyro see... just sliced in half. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> better Senate to Kelly. <laughs> but yeah, this is like an early moment of like we said before storm is nearly the leader not everyone is like used to taking orders from her yet so this is an establishing moment of just logan you're my little bitch and you're gonna do what i tell you to meanwhile the thing that's prompted this is them watching as nightcrawler is fighting himself because mystique is turned into nightcrawler so there's two nightcrawlers wrestling in the corner uh <laughs> so Colossus manages to like knock uh, Blob into Avalanche which sort of takes them both out and then Storm is like oh shit yeah hang on I'm outside now let me use some rain to get Pyro taken out and then uh, Nightcrawler manages to like get a good whack on uh, Mystique Nightcrawler and she's turning back into Mystique and he realizes how similar they look because they're both blue people with yellow eyes which like yeah it, it's very similar designs in terms of just like the physical design of their bodies and she reveals that not only does she know his name but she says that if he wants to know why they look so similar he should ask his adoptive mother Margali Sados about it so in the midst of this just thematically and narratively plot-heavy, all-on-its-own main story, we also get the first dropping of something's going on between Nightcrawler and Mystique. Chris because Claremont. this is so early that it's not established that she's his mom. Chris Claremont dropping, like, a little a little plot thread for later. Well, it's not, like, fully established until, like, the 90s. Like, Claremont is gone by the time they actually put it on the page, even though it's kind of fucking obvious from this what she's saying. But, like... Claremont wanted to establish that Mystique was Nightcrawler's father because she was getting it on with Destiny while shapeshifted into a male form, and Destiny is Nightcrawler's mother, but uh, Marvel editorial is boring and would not let him do it repeatedly, and so uh, Nightcrawler's dad Mystique is his mom, and his dad is a demon from, like, a hell dimension or something stupid like that. Um, yay! We'll get to the Draco eventually. 
but for now, <laughs> Warren largely hasn't been super active compared to the other ones in the fight scenes. That's because Lar- all he can do is fly away from danger. Yeah. <laughs> he just actively dodges things. He's really good as a distraction because the villains will just get too distracted just trying to throw shit at him. Yeah. At this point, he flies back on panel. The fight's essentially over because they more or less taken most of the Brotherhood out of commission. Mystique's gonna escape, but Warren's just arriving to say, the army doesn't give a fuck that we were fighting, Mystique. They're still gonna try and get us. So the X-Men then have to try and start fleeing away while Mystique shapeshifts into her government form. And essentially the fight is wrapping up with everyone leaving. At which point we shift back to the future. The X-Men think that they're getting the drop on some Sentinels. So to clarify, um, they've left Unconscious Kitty and Rachel outside. um, So that Rachel can like monitor the mind swap. Um, So this is just uh, Colossus, Storm, and Wolverine heading in. And they think they're getting the drop on them, and Wolverine, like, jumps to try and, like... Well, they do a fastball special, which is when Colossus picks up Wolverine and throws him at shit. And the Sentinel turns around and just vaporizes Wolverine. Could he come back from that? He's come back from shit like that before, hasn't he? Nowadays, yes, but at this point, he could not. No. And they then show even just his metal skeleton and the way characters are talking and the way it plays out is he is dead like wolverine's healing factor is not the just complete and other uh he's got a terminator arm he does have a terminator (laughs) arm um at this point in canon his healing factor is not the total immortality that it has become so he is now just a dead metal skeleton on the ground storm and colossus are pissed storm fights the sentinels colossus then gets really pissed when storm is then killed she is brutally impaled it's it's in silhouette but it is nasty yeah and there's just narration about how Peter Rasputin was a gentle man of peace and how in watching all of his friends die he is just learning to hate and is just going berserker fighting essentially he's the last one left while from outside Rachel is holding on to Kate's body and she's been like telepathically following everyone and she can feel telepathically the moment when their thoughts stop And so even if she can't physically see each specific moment, she's feeling when all of her friends die. And she stays in contact with Colossus and because she doesn't want him to be alone when he dies. And before she can even finish this thought, he's dead. Like, Colossus goes into his berserker rage and then literally three panels later he has died. Because that is just how hopeless and unable to change things they are in this future. It is too far gone and there's nothing they can do. And we're just left with Rachel huddling against unconscious Kate body, Kitty mind, pride in the horrific, like, no lights on, destroyed New York. Uh, Meanwhile, in the present, Destiny, who managed to sneak away while everyone else was fighting, has a crossbow to uh, use to kill Professor Kelly, uh, to use to kill Senator Kelly, 
and it's established that, yeah, she's blind, but she knows where he is going to be at any moment. So even if he tries to escape, she will still be able to just fire the crossbow, like, where he's going to be, and she's going to be able to kill him. Um, but Kate, at the last moment, phases through Destiny, which, like, the temporal anomaly and the way it interacts with her powers, like, fucks her up for a second, and she fires the crossbow and misses. Um, and with that success, with the assassination averted, Kitty and Kate's mind split back, and Kitty wakes up and is confused why she isn't in the danger room. Destiny is now unconscious on the floor because, like, the whole temporal anomaly thing just, like, clearly fucked with her for a second, and now she just can't cope with that kind of, like, I guess it's like a double vision thing for her or something? Who knows? Yeah, it's also, I'll say, leaves room for interpretation and in that because Rachel and Kitty had been the only ones left in the future right before then, there's also a sense of, did the body swap happen at that moment because that was the moment of death sort of thing? And the characters like explicitly talk about, like, did we change the future because we stopped the assassination and it's a whole no easy answer sort of thing where they did prevent this assassination but does that mean that the world is going to turn out better or is it still going to end up being horrid but just at a different timeline like is this the actual key event that led to this future or did we just stop this one asshole from getting assassinated? It's not like he's any more pro-mutant after this, because then, um, after the X-Men commiserate for a page, we go to the White House a uh, month later, where Senator Kelly uh, has apparently decided... Um, so he... Senator Kelly's little like committee, the Senate Committee on uh, Mutants, has finished like come up to its conclusions and submitted its report to the president and he and Sebastian Shaw who is at this point a supervillain the leader of the Hellfire Club um he's a mutant but he's not like publicly a mutant and he's also a capitalist dick they meet in secret uh, at the White House and the president and them get together and decide they're going to start an operation called Project Wide Awake which is going to create sentinels just in case they need to use them against the mutants and they're putting henry peter gyrick in charge i think at this point gyrick was mostly known for his appearances in avengers comics um he uh he's a real prick and is absolutely just a huge mutant phobe he's the fucking worst this is the worst and this he... is a depressing end to this book he has a very abysmal haircut the Widow's Peak is very far back, and just this ugly short red hair. Ugly hair for a bad man. <laughs> uh, uh, same for Sebastian Shaw, too. I don't know what the fuck he's got going on in this panel, but it's awful. <laughs> they look bad. They look very bad. Uh, Kelly has vaguely normal hair, and by that I mean it's like way too polished like TV politician hair, which yeah. I guess does work for Kelly. But yeah, these other fucking guys. The president's like hidden in shadows in this. There is a later Claremont X-Men story where Mystique turns into the president and just straight up turns into Ro Ronald Reagan. I don't know why we aren't like showing the president in, in, in this, but we're like, 
we'll have Mystique show up and like make jokes about Ronald Reagan later. The ending is very unhelpful of just, they literally stopped the assassination and we're still going to end on a creation of Sentinels. So well, there's we... not a single moment of good on ya heroes, you've saved the day. Kelly literally says that if there were no mutants, period, his life wouldn't have been threatened at all, so he doesn't really give a shit that mutants saved his life. Fuck Robert Kelly, they were wrong, he's not a reasonable man, that's that's full dick mode. Yeah, they do, I think there's a couple times throughout where they use language along the lines of, like, saying, he's a fine man, which I react to a couple different ways of the initial reaction was the annoyance that I have anytime people describe bigots as fine, good, upstanding people because they're inherently not. I could, like, the redeemable aspect would be if we're just doing a thing of, well, the point is how easily people who seem fine can become agents and accomplices of bigotry and murder, you know, and therefore just... He does in this? He's in this room. Yeah, which, like, again, this is a two-issue comic. They're not diving super deep into the thought of intricacy of if we're it's okay to call him a fine man or not. He is not. But, yeah, that's Days of Future Past. We end with Henry Peter Gyrick and his bad hair. Uh, the only Robert Kelly who is any good is the one from the first X-Men movie who turns into a weird puddle and had that one horrific, like, action figure that was, like, a gooey one. I had so many of the X-Men movie action figures as a kid. I still kind of miss the Sabretooth. He was cool. The Robert Kelly was not cool. From that movie? Yeah, from X-Men 1. The action figure looked cool. Okay. Maybe that's five-year-old me speaking because I had it as a five-year-old. That's that's fair. I have I have very happily brought in um, five-year-old Chris things into this podcast. Um... I guess, do you have any final thoughts you want to add on Days of Future Past as we wrap up? This is almost certainly going to be our longest episode, even though it's maybe about the least material we've ever covered in page count. Um, Giant Size X-Men has less pages than this. Yeah, I suppose it's, yeah, There's maybe a so little bit. There's so much to talk about with this. This is such, like, not only is this, like, a definitive X-Men story. Not only does this, like, change that entire franchise forever, and, like, after this story, you can't not... Like, if you are now writing Uncanny X-Men, you have to have an opinion on the mutant metaphor. You can't just use the X-Men to write, like, normal superhero stories. Because it just... It's unavoidable. You can't not do... Like, after this... After this future that you've seen, you have to think about it, and you have to have a point of view and talk about it. And I think most... Well, I certainly... My, my main issue with this comic, I think, in the end, is it is still part of, like, that old assimilation list. Charles Xavier and the X-Men, if we save the humans and look good and, and, and look like superheroes, they'll like us kind of bullshit. Um, that ties into, like, a lot of real-world bullshit about, like, good and bad people and minorities. Which, like, also, it's weirdly against that, because the X-Men showed up and saved this asshole's life, and he's still starting Project Wide Awake at the end of the comic. So, 
I actually really love that the last two pages are there. I think that, that that last page is there. I think that last page is really vital in making the whole thing land. Yeah, like for me, it's like, it's not a con because I don't feel like the narrative is trying to make me agree with Xaviorism. You know, like it's explicitly showing that they did all this and it may or may not be for naught, you know? And just like narratively, it makes sense that they're going along with Charles. I do like the little moments peppered throughout where the characters show maybe not outright disdain, but they're not fawning over Charles. Like there's a moment where Charles tells Storm to let him read her mind to catch up faster. And there's just a bit of narration that basically says that Storm does it reluctantly. Yeah, she yeah. like she like is like hesitates for a second because she just really doesn't like opening her mind up to Charles like that, which like yeah, what a fucking prick. Yeah. The story's good. There weren't many things that were unexpected just because I knew everything going in because it's been done and referenced so many times. I think the one main unexpected detail was just how fruity John Byrne was feeling when he drew Angel. <laughs> because his superpowers really are being rich and being hot, and he is hot here. And um, dodging. He can he can fly and dodge things. He's so good at it. Superpower dodging, yeah. For, for a guy with a wingspan of, like, 15 feet, he can avoid shit real good. Like, that's a big target. That is a good point. But yeah, I think the story isn't just historically important. It actually holds up like this is a good comic. This is very good. Um, although we certainly had our dinosaur and not dinosaur reptile fun last week, I think this is still the best X-Men story we've talked about so far. Yeah. And I don't just mean that in a, it's so important, but just as a fully polished work of art it's just very well done you know even if we might have like tiny misgivings i made fun of the canada story even like the wendigo canada story that happens right before this is pretty fucking good like it's kind of pointless in hindsight because like it, you, you literally you read the proteus arc which is a big like arc for a bunch of the characters um you know, pushing the X-Men to, like, the extreme in terms of villains they're facing. Then you go into Dark Phoenix, which is... I mean, it's Dark Phoenix. You've heard of Dark Phoenix. And then you just, like, hit two issues about Canada, and it's this hilariously out-of-place, like, little Canada story. And it's still a good story. This era of X-Men's fucking insane. And then you do this. Yeah. We'll get to more old-school X-Men, I'm sure. But do you have any... I guess last thought before I steer us into what X-Men we'll be reading next week. Oh no, let's 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 hit next week's X-Men. I'm excited. So, we're going to be skipping forward 30 years. Yeah, I think 36. We're skipping forward a long time to 2017, the third Iceman solo series. We'll be reading <laughs> Iceman number 1 through 5. I'm having to describe it precisely because there's multiple Iceman series. That's multiple Iceman 1 through 5s. Yes, we are doing the third Iceman 1 through 5. Part of me would say Iceman Volume 3, but if you go to the store and you're looking at the sides, it's not going to say Volume 3 at the side. It's going to say Iceman Volume 1, 
It's the one with the modern looking colouring, because the others are old enough that they look older when you look at the cover, probably. But the thing is, it's the first of the two with the modern looking colouring, because there's oh, also God. Iceman Volume 4. <laughs> These are Iceman, the series from 2017, issues 1 through 5. Um, the this trade is... paperback edition is subtitled Fying Out, and the cover to Volume 1 has Iceman against an orange background. Uh, it's done by Kevin Wada. That should be enough to get you to the right one. This is why people don't fucking read comics. Yeah, but <laughs> we talked about the story this week and just talked about mutant metaphor stuff. Next week is going to be an example of X-Men comics actually simultaneously doing mutant stuff and real world minority status because it is going to be the first real narrative grappling with Iceman having come out and being gay. Mutant intersection, which is I think my favorite flavor of X-Men. Yeah, so join us next week. We're going to be talking about Gay Bobby. Hope you had fun and see you then. Bye everyone! Oh, oh, oh.